Uh, the first part of the Word of God is called the Old Testament, and we're turning to page 768. It's called the Old Testament because uh, it is the period before Jesus came to earth, and it's uh, pointing forward to that time when he would come. And so Jeremiah is a prophet. And he's speaking to the people of God then, uh, but speaking also uh, to the nations of the earth. And so Jeremiah chapter 10, page 768. Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 1. Hear what the Lord says to you. O house of Israel, that's another name for the descendants of Abraham, the family of Abraham. They are the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the sky, though the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the peoples are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails, so that it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a melon patch, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried, because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. No one is like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. Who should not revere you, O King of the nations? This is your due. Among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. They are all senseless and foolish. They are taught by worthless wooden idols. Hammered silver is brought from Tarshish, and gold from Euphas. What the craftsman and goldsmith have made is then dressed in blue and purple, all made by skilled workers. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. When he is angry, the earth trembles, the nations cannot endure his wrath. <coughs> Tell them this, these gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. When he thunders the waters in the heavens roar, he makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. His images are a fraud. 
They have no breath in them. They are worthless, the objects of mockery. When their judgment comes, they will perish. He who is the portion of Jacob is not like these, for he is the maker of all things, including Israel, the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord Almighty is his name. And then we turn to the New Testament, uh, the book of Acts. Jesus has now come. He's lived and died, risen again, returned to heaven. And he is now appointed men <clears throat> to preach that he is the saviour, not just of the Jews, but of the world. The saviour of all nations. And so we read now page 1109. Acts chapter 14. And here we have Paul and Barnabas. Uh, and they are in what is called um, ancient Asia Minor, uh, modern day uh, Turkey. Uh, and they are preaching. Uh, Acts chapter 14. And we read from verse 8. And they encounter as they preach the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, they encounter the false gods of their day. Let's read um, in Acts 14 verse 8. In Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. That's to Paul and Barnabas. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things, these worthless gods, to the living God, who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past he let all nations go their own way. Yet he's not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts 
with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered round him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derbe. Amen. All of us here tonight will have heard of the Peace Bridge in Derry, Londonderry, or as Jerry Anderson says, Stroke City. Uh, some of you may have walked across the Peace Bridge, uh, perhaps as a tourist, or to say that you have done it, uh, or perhaps uh, to shorten your journey uh, from one side of the city to the other. This bridge that spans the River Foyle, this bridge that was completed in June 2011 and that cost £14 million to build. It is supposed to be the icon of the new Northern Ireland. As this bridge unites the divided communities of Derry, Protestant and Catholic, Unionist and Nationalist, Foilside and Waterside, the Peace Bridge. The Bible speaks of an even greater separation than that in Northern Ireland, than that in Crimea or Syria or Afghanistan. The Bible speaks of a separation between the Holy God and a sinful human race. And this separation makes the one the enemy of the other. And tonight our text for our guest service is 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 5 and 6. At page 1192 in the Church Bible. And here Paul um, speaks of the peace bridge. The peace bridge. The true peace bridge. Between the sinner and a holy God. Between you and a holy God. Between me and a holy God. And this peace bridge has been provided by God. It is not made of stone or steel or wood or rope. God's peace bridge takes our human likeness. Or God's peace bridge, we might say, has human flesh and blood. Let's turn then to page 1192 and we'll read from verse 1. To get the context of what Paul is saying and read to the end of verse 7. He's writing to the church in Ephesus where there is a small uh, body of believers in a very pagan, ungodly city. Um, in this city there is uh, a temple to the goddess Diana. Um, 
and um, various other gods as well. So Paul writes, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone. For kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Saviour. He wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave him self as a ransom for all, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. And a teacher of the true faith, or you might say the true religion, to the Gentiles. Jesus Christ, the peace bridge. There are three things we want to take away from our text tonight. And they are printed on the rear side of the order of service. First of all, there is one God. There is one God. Almost 400 years ago, a booklet of 107 questions and answers on the Christian faith was produced. It was designed to state in a simple and memorable way what the Bible teaches on key subjects. It is called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, known to many of us as the Shorter Catechism. And question number five asks the following. Are there more gods than one? Are there more gods than one? Or to put it in our modern language, how many gods are there in the world? How would you answer that question tonight? You personally. How does our society answer that question tonight? Well, we can be clear and be in no doubt that society says there are many gods, each equal and each value valid in themselves. That, however, is not how the writers of the Catechism of 400 years ago saw it. Here's their answer. There is but one only. The living and true God. How many gods are there? There is but one only. The living and true God. So who is right? Is our day right? Or are the men of 400 years ago right? Is this belief that there are many gods a new thing? 
Well, no, it isn't. It is not as old as the belief that there is only one God. For that goes back to the beginning of time. But this belief that there is a range of gods, yes, it's new, but it has been around for thousands of years. Go back to the time of Abraham. 4,000 years ago. Genesis chapter 11. And before Abraham came to believe in the living and true God, the one only God, the scripture tells us that his family worshipped other gods. Joshua 24 verse 2, your fathers, Terah the father of Abraham, in old times served other gods. Ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Chaldee, there the people worshipped other gods. And we believe that chief among them was the moon god. Come, come forward 500 years in the history of humanity to Moses. Around 1450, this man grew up in Egypt. And God used him to save the descendants of Abraham and to bring them out of Egypt as they looked to the Christ to come. But here's what God said uh, to Moses. Exodus 12 verse 12. Here's what he said about ancient Egypt. Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. Mesopotamia, many gods. Ancient Egypt, many gods. Jump forward another five year, 500 years in the history of humanity and we come to Solomon. That phrase, somebody says, wise as Solomon. Well, that's the Solomon we're talking about. He was um, one of the kings over the descendants of Abraham. And God gave him great wisdom. He had another name. It was the name Jedidah. And it meant beloved of God. Yet what did this man do? The latter part of his life. He did something very foolish. Something against God's word. He married many wives. And he married them not from among God's people. But from the surrounding nations. And he began to worship those gods. First Kings 11 verse 4. Here's what God says. His wives turned his heart after other gods. So ancient Mesopotamia had its gods. Ancient Egypt had its gods. The nations in the time of Solomon, the nations surrounding Israel, Syria and various other nations, whatever direction you looked in, had their gods. And if we jump forward another 
400 to 500 years. We come to uh, 550 to 450 uh, uh, BC in human history. And we come uh, to a time when the descendants of Abraham and the people of God are living in Babylon. And in fact, some of them already earlier have been taken away by the superpower Assyria before this. And God's people are now living in Assyria and Babylon as captives. Now Daniel was one of those in Babylon. And what was the reason for Daniel, boys and girls, being thrown to the lion's den? What was the reason, boys and girls, for his three friends being thrown into that um, fiery furnace, that burning furnace, blazing furnace? Well, here's what they answered, those men of God. They said, Daniel 3, verse 18, Let it be known to you, O King Nebuchadnezzar, O King of Babylon, we do not serve your gods. Have you got the picture? Right from the time of Abraham, we find what's called polytheism. The belief that there are many gods. It was there in Abram's day, in ancient Mesopotamia. It was there when he travelled to Canaan. It was there in the days of his descendant, Moses, and uh, God's people in Egypt. It was there in the nations uh, around um, God's people in the days of Solomon. It was there, uh, this polytheism, this belief in many gods, was there in Assyria and in Babylon. And when we come into the New Testament era, um, which covers a hundred years, a hundred year period, it is no better. No different. Acts 14, that we read earlier in our service. From verse 8 to verse 18. Here's Paul and Barnabas. They are Christian missionaries. They're going out in the name of Jesus. They're proclaiming that God is the God of the nations. And what do they encounter? They encounter people in Lystra who worship false gods. Zeus, a Greek god. Hermes, a Greek god. And there were the Roman equivalents. The Romans had other names for them. But these were false gods. Acts chapter 19 gives us another example. In Ephesus, the very church to which Paul is writing this letter in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. And uh, in Acts 19 verse 23 to 41, you have that incident of the temple to Diana. And the, uh, the little shrines that were made and the little uh, images that were sold. And because people were turning from the false god Diana or goddess Diana to the living Christ and the living one and only God, the tradesmen were losing out financially 
And so there was a riot that was stirred up against the Christians. I could give you many, many more examples. I want you to show, I want you to see that from the ancient nations, right from the Canaanites, through and the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians, through to the Romans and the Greeks, they had their own gods. So what is the Bible's response to the existence of false gods in the uh, era that the Bible covers? What is the Bible's response to false gods in our era? The people pursue and follow and worship. What is the Bible, what is the Christian's response to the suggestion that there are many gods? First of all, we need to be clear, the Bible teaches, Christians believe, there is but one God only. The living and true God. We read there from Jeremiah. Very clear. Or we could have read equally from Isaiah 44. Isaiah 45. And we read there. I am the first and last. Apart from me God says. There is no God. There isn't a whole range of gods. Men might think that there is. But from God's perspective, there is not and there cannot be. The Bible also teaches that these other gods that people believe in, well, where did they come from? They are the creation of men and women's minds. They are figments of sinful human imagination. We all love a good story. Whether it is Alison in Wonderland or whatever. But when it comes to matters of faith, there's no place for a good story. For an Alice in Wonderland approach. Paul put it like this. Romans chapter 1 verse 25. He says of his day. They exchanged the truth of God. For a lie. And worship and serve the creature. In other words their own ideas. Their own selves. Rather than the one true and living God whom Paul called the Creator. We sign there from Psalm 96, verse 5. All other gods are idols done. So the Bible teaches there's but one God only. All other gods are the figments of man's imagination. And the Bible also teaches that to worship any other God but the living God is idolatry. It is one of the greatest sins 
that we can commit or anyone can commit to worship and to give to someone else, to give to something else what belongs to God alone. There is one God. If you look up the Encyclopedia Britannia, it lists the 20 most popular religions of the modern world. It does so in terms of the number of followers. And Christianity tops that list. And number 20 is Scientology. But the reality is, there is only one God. The policy of government, the popular view of society is that if God exists, and that's a big if for some people, if God exists, there are many gods. The Bible teaches Christians believe Reformed Presbyterians unashamedly believe and teach there is one God. And tonight, if you're here and you're not, you're not a Christian, you don't need to embark on a lifelong study of the religions of the world. You could spend all your life doing that. And you'd waste opportunity. You need study only one religion. The religion of the Bible. And as you do that, you will discover there is one God. And you will indeed find the answer to why other gods that men worship are in fact no gods at all. There is one God. That's the longest point tonight. Second is there is one mediator. One mediator. This flows out of the fact that there is one God. And one mediator of God or between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. When you need a mediator in the workplace or in the family, something very serious has gone wrong. There has been a breakdown in relationships. In the workplace, a breakdown in industrial relationships between the employer and the employee. For example, at the moment, the London Underground various stages is having strikes and dispute over the closure of ticket offices and therefore redundancies. And there'll be those behind the scenes who are mediating, trying to bring the employer and the employees to some kind of resolution. In family life, a breach of a relationship can develop between a husband and wife to the point that they do not talk to each other or they cannot talk with each other and help from outside is needed and will be sought quickly if they're wise a friend a minister or a counsellor again to restore the relationship a mediator is required when relationships are broken 
And when our text declares there is one mediator, it is highlighting that there is a problem that exists in the relationship between God and humans. There's a problem that exists in the relationship between God and you. There is estrangement. There is separation. There is division. There is breakdown in the relationship. And the Bible teaches that the cause of that breakdown is human sin. Disobedience goes right back to Genesis 3. Began with Adam in the Garden of Eden. And it has been passed on and down through every generation from every from Adam to every single individual that is born of a man and a woman coming together in the marriage relationship. Every last one is a product of the biological relationship uh, of marriage is a sinner. Paul put it like this in Romans 3. There is no one righteous. No one right with God. And then he added on, no, not even one. Later in that same chapter, Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned. All have sinned. And our sin is the cause of the breakdown. Our sin makes us God's enemies. Our sin makes us by nature objects of of his wrath. Ephesians 2 describes us as dead in transgressions and sins by nature, that's by ourselves, objects of wrath. Now, in this sinful condition, there are not many individuals who can bridge the gulf that sin has opened up between us and God. There are not several who can restore the broken relationship. There is one. One. The man Christ Jesus. There is only one mediator. He stands alone. A priest cannot mediate between you and God. Boys and girls, a parent, your parent, cannot restore you to God. Those of you who have come to church this evening as a friend of someone, your friend who's a Christian, they cannot restore you to God. A minister like myself, we cannot, I cannot restore you to God. The only one who can restore you to God is the man Christ Jesus. And he is both God and man. 
That's why it's called here the man, not just the man Jesus, but the man Christ Jesus. And the title Christ is used here to highlight that this individual comes down from heaven. He is anointed of God. That's what Christ means. He's sent by God. He is the eternal Son of God. But what has happened is this eternal Son has taken a human body to himself when he was conceived not by the activity of a man but by the activity of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary so that he was without sin as a man and so his name is Jesus that's the human name that was given to him because he will save his people from their sins there is one mediator and so for you for me tonight who want to be right with God who need to be restored to God, there is only one mediator. There is only one person whose life, whose work, you need to understand and know. Christ Jesus, the God-man. He alone is the peace bridge. And the peace bridge stretches from heaven to earth in Christ Jesus. There is one God. There is one mediator. And finally, there is one ransom. There is one ransom. The question we want to ask now as we close is how does Jesus Christ as mediator how does Jesus Christ as the bridge bring peace between you and God between me and God between sinful humans and God how does he go about restoring that relationship well, let's go back again to mediation in employment. Here's a dispute between an employer and employees. And how do they restore normal relationships? Well, there's often got to be negotiation. And each sets out their position. And then the mediator comes in, whether it's ACAS or the trade union or whatever, and he encourages each side to have a bit of give and a bit of take and so by compromise by everyone moving their position a little then there's usually a restoration of relationship so the employer he will increase his pay offer maybe by half a percent or he relaxes some of the cutbacks that he's going to impose. And the workers, for their part, 
And they say, okay, we'll agree to, to a shorter lunch break. And we'll agree to a 1% increase in our productivity. And so you have a basis then for the restoration of a relationship by negotiation and compromise. Or come into the family where there's disputes in the family. And how are relationships restored in a family when they're broken? Well, they're restored when people, when the parties listen to each other. When the parties talk about things from their perspective and then when they put themselves in the shoes of the other person. When they seek to understand. When they recognize they need to change aspects of their behavior. When they face up to their mistakes. When they accept their responsibilities. That's how mediation works. In the workplace and in the family. Is that how our broken relationship with God is restored? Does Jesus bring God and us around the negotiating table? And does he say to us, let's sit down together. And does he say to his father, now you need to relax the rules a little bit. You're asking too much of these people. You need to overlook certain faults. You need to ease back in your judgments. Does Jesus as the mediator address you and me and say you've got to be a bit more productive. You've got to make a bit more effort. You've got to try harder. You've got to reform a bit more of your life step by step, day by day, year by year. No. No. There's no dissolution. There's no weakening of God's demands. There's no negotiation. There's no discussion. There's no saying to you and to me, do a little bit better. And you will be reconciled and you will be restored to holy God. No, instead... In Christ Jesus, the only mediator, there's not negotiation and compromise. There is substitution that achieves reconciliation. There is substitution that achieves reconciliation. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus, the mediator, comes and he stands before God. And he stands before the human race. And what does he do? He says to his father, pour out your wrath, your judgment on me for their sins. And he says to you and to me, the sinner, he says, come unto me, repent 
Turn from your sin. Trust in me. See what, what you have, what you will receive in me. The forgiveness of your sins. The removal of God's wrath. And you see, Jesus can do that because he lived the perfect, sinless life to his Father. That's why Paul says here, who gave himself a ransom. A ransom. It's a price. When hijackers take a plane, they demand a ransom. Money. Or the release of some people belonging to their own group. And so Jesus had to give himself as a ransom. He had to pay the price. He had to settle the debt. He had to take the judgment. Peter says of him in 1 Peter 2, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, yet he became a ransom for all. That's for all kinds of people. That's Paul's argument in 1 Timothy 2. He's not talking about every last person, but he's talking about all kinds of people. And so here's the reality. There is one ransom. Jesus died the death for sin that you and I should die. On the cross, Jesus didn't just undergo physical death. He underwent spiritual death. He took God's just, exact judgment on himself for the sins of his people. He entered hell. And that's the death that you and I should die. And non-Christian, that is the death that you will die. You will enter hell. And you will cry out. As Christ cried out on the cross. But not the words, my God, my God. But you will cry out, why have you forsaken me? If you do not repent. And if you do not believe. And so Jesus entered hell. For others. That was the ransom price. He bore the holy wrath of his father to pay the price. To cancel the debt of sin. Notice how Paul puts it. Who gave himself. It's a tense that means once. It means who gave himself once as a substitute to pay the price for all, on behalf of all kinds of people. And so you can't be, you and I can't sit here tonight and we can't say, well, Jesus didn't die for my type. I'm of a special group and he died for that kind of group. He died for good people. He died for rich people. He died for church-going people. He died for people born into Christian families. But oh no, he didn't die for me. Because I don't have that background. 
and I'm not a good person. The reality is he died for every class of person that you can name or think of. And whatever group you put yourself into tonight, he died for people of your type. And so the cost of this peace bridge, it was far greater than the 14 million that it took to build the peace bridge in Derry. The cost was the life of the Son of God in a human body. So where do you stand tonight? Are you still separated from God by your sin? Are you in a broken relationship with God? Or are you reconciled to the one God by the one mediator whose one ransom was to live and to die for sinners? Is Jesus Christ the peace bridge in your life? That tonight you can say, I have crossed from death to life. I have never crossed the Derry Peace Bridge. I've seen it. I've admired its construction, but I've never crossed it. And perhaps that's precisely where you are tonight as a non Christian. You've heard about Christ the Peace Bridge. You have admired Christ the Peace Bridge. You've seen Christ the Peace Bridge in the life of others. But you've never crossed from death to life. And so tonight, this one God, who's provided the one mediator, the one peace bridge, a ransom for all, he says, cross from death to life from being my enemy to being my friend <clears throat> repent of your sin believe in me and you will be saved Amen